From Deus Humanity-Centered Artificial Intelligence, my name is Natalie Post, and this is the Human-Centered AI Podcast. We feature inspiring stories of people who are paving the way and shaping the future of artificial intelligence in ways that are human, humanity, and planet-centered. In this episode, I am speaking with Nadina Galli, who's an award-winning ecological engineer and entrepreneur whose innovative practice spans the fields of sustainability, technology, and urbanism. We talk about her work and how she applies emerging technologies to improve the health of urban ecosystems through a framework she developed called the Internet of Nature. Beyond that, she's an amazing storyteller, and she's really able to translate the complexities of her field to very relatable and human concepts. So without further ado, I'm very excited to share this episode with you. So let's get into that. Hi, Nadina, and welcome to the Human-Centered AI Podcast. It is great to have you here today. So for our listeners who might not know you, could you give a little introduction about yourself and your background? Thanks, Natalie. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Nadina. I'm an ecological engineer and entrepreneur dedicated to applying emerging technologies essentially to improve the health of urban ecosystems, something I call the Internet of Nature. That's great to hear. And like, can you tell a little more about what got you here? Like, why did you even consider ecological engineering in the first place? Yeah, so when I was a kid, I did not know what ecological engineering was. <laughs> <laughs> and I essentially, I got here because I am Dutch originally, but I grew up in a typical North American suburb in uh, southwestern Ontario in Canada. And growing up there, I was always fascinated basically how urban development seemed to encroach on nature. And it seemed like there was no end for urban development. And it, it raised a lot of questions about this kind of inherent imbalance that you would see between nature and urban development. And it basically drove me to want to build better ecosystems for both people and for nature. Mm, yeah. And so how did you embark on that journey? Like how, you know, like what did that look like for you? So the first thing for me was Before I can begin to come up with any solutions, I need to understand how the earth functions. Mm. So I moved to the city of Toronto and I did my bachelor's there in ecology and evolutionary biology. So on the one hand, understanding where humans came from, really the evolutionary biology's perspective, but also the ecological problems of today. So how and how do those two things balance each other out or not. And from there, I moved to Amsterdam, back to my home country of the Netherlands. And I went to the University of Amsterdam and studied earth sciences for my master's. And that was really driven by just wanting to have a better technical understanding of some of the more present ecological issues, but also some of the tools that we could actually use to go about and measure those issues. So learning about different tools like soil probing and remote sensing, and that kind of is what first introduced me to the kind of more technological side of ecology. Yeah. Um, after I graduated, I uh, worked at Metabolic uh, for a number of years as an industrial and urban ecologist. And I loved working there. Uh, I learned an incredible amount from the 
founder and CEO of Metabolic Evagladic. Mm -hmm. I always tell her she's a walking encyclopedia, <laughs> and I I learned more in six months of working at Metabolic than I ever did in my six years of studies before then. I learned an incredible amount, not just about sustainability and, and what it means to be a sustainable city or a sustainable organization, but also what metabolic uses, which is integral in its work, um, something called systems thinking. Mm -hmm. So really starting to understand sustainability, not just from a solutions perspective, but really understanding the system. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've, I've carried with me throughout my work. And um, I got the opportunity to do uh, a PhD, which I embarked on. And that PhD was in a field called ecological engineering, which is a relatively new field. Um, it's, you know, it started about 50, 60 years ago were kind of the first writings, um, specifically two brothers in the US, the Odom brothers. They did an incredible amount of work really putting forward this framework of ecological engineering. And then William Mitch in the late 90s and early 2000s really kind of further built on the field of ecological engineering. And what the field hopes to do is basically apply best practice from ecology and engineering and combine the two to build better ecosystems for both people and nature. And when I read that and when I read the papers that were published under this header of ecological engineering, I was like, this is what I've been looking for. Yeah, wow. So that's what drew me to, to do my PhD in it, which I just completed a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a bit more about your PhD, because you mentioned it briefly before Internet of Nature. But I'm very curious to hear, like, what is the Internet of Nature to start with a very obvious question? Yeah. So the Internet of Nature, which is um, also the title of my dissertation. So the Internet of Nature is basically a concept that arose from being extremely also throughout my work at Metabolic, seeing these these agendas, these visions that municipalities had to be, on the one hand, a smarter city, and on the other hand, a greener city. Mm -hmm. And what you saw in these agendas is that were basically, they ran parallel to each other in these silos. And I was fascinated by, you know, perhaps there was ways that we could actually apply the smart city movement to actually be able to better monitor urban ecology and actually build these better ecosystems that I was yeah. so driven to do. And the Internet of Nature essentially is the concept that arose from really intersecting those two things. And the Internet of Nature essentially is this world in which every part of the urban ecosystem has a digital representation so that we may actually be able to better enhance and restore nature's ability to combat climate change, mm -hmm. but at the same time also reconnect people back into nature, which I believe is an integral part of building an overall sustainable city. So why do you think um, nature should be digitally represented? And also what would be the alternative? It's a cliche to say this, but you can't manage what you don't measure. And I think nature inherently has the capability to be able to intercept stormwater, to filter pollutants, to be so much more than an aesthetic value, all these things known broadly as ecosystem services. It's just a matter of giving it the space to do so. And a lot of time when we actually go about better monitoring those things, we're actually able to give nature a, a, a well-respected deserved spot in cities. And I think that comes along with having the tools and the data at your disposal to be able to, to, to better put a plan into place. Yeah, yeah. And so in what ways did that like form itself during your, your, your PhD? Like in what ways did you try to digitally represent nature? And like 
how did that work? What worked well? Like what didn't work well? Yeah, so that that was that was a huge um, experiment that lasted a number of years of seeing okay which technologies actually might you know have a place in in the Internet of Nature. Um, so one of the things that I worked on was the use of an IoT sensor network. So how could we use um, you know IoT sensors, whether that was on Wi-Fi or on a LoRaWAN network, to essentially be able to monitor soil health? Mm -hmm. And this brought up a lot of interesting questions. And before you can even lay down a sensor network, how many sensors do you need per tree? And how can you make sure that the sensor is actually giving a representative um, idea, full picture of what that soil actually is? I mean, soil in cities is incredibly variable. So we also have to make sure that the technology that we are using is, is actually giving us the outputs that are usable as yeah. well. Um, another uh, thing that I experimented, another technology that I experimented with was high-resolution remote sensing, specifically satellite imagery. Mm. These images have been used in the last couple of years for defense and intelligence, agriculture, but very little applications have looked at urban forestry. So it was looking at the potential uses there, for example, creating a tree inventory based on satellite imagery alone. Something else that I looked at was, could we perhaps use citizen opinion? Could we mine citizen opinion as, you know, has been done in the hospitality and the product uh, services sector? You know, when there's a, a new iPhone out, Apple might actually look on Amazon reviews and see what they might have to tweak in their next iteration based on what people are writing in their reviews. Could we use that, but then use reviews that have been done about urban green spaces to, to glean uh, information about how cities might actually go about improving those parks? Um, those are just a couple of examples. There are many more, but those are, are just some of the things I've been working on basically to, to iterate the Internet of Nature and its yeah. applications, because I, I do believe the best way to, to learn is by doing. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so in terms of by doing, because um, you set up the Green City Watch program or project, um, can you tell a little bit about that and what that is? Yeah, so Green City Watch is an open source initiative that builds off of some of the remote sensing work that I just mentioned. Um, so Green City Watch was was basically born after um, myself and three co-founders um, from the University of Amsterdam, uh, basically we wanted we want a challenge that was set forward by Maxar Technologies, oh, okay. which was um, and still is uh, the largest commercial supplier of satellite imagery. And they essentially they had the question and said, you know, we have this high res imagery; it's being used for all these sectors, but perhaps there are ways that we can use the imagery to accelerate one or more of the sustainable development goals. And the four of us as co-founders, but also as fellow earth scientists, we were, you know, we'd done all our field work, you know, from Peru to Iceland to Siberia, all over the world. And yet all of us were incredibly fascinated by the very nature at our doorstep, which mm -hmm. just like 70% of, of all the other Europeans is in a city where most yeah. of us live. And we were part of a, a study with the University of Amsterdam that showed that green space had actually decreased by 11% over the last 13 years. Oh, wow. So it got us thinking, you know, maybe there's a way to use satellite imagery to not just map the quantity of green space, which had already been done, but actually the quality of green space. So from there, we set out and we developed this, this indicator. So all these different, these indicator frameworks, all these different ways that you would perhaps measure the quality of green space in 
in situ in the park itself, what are some of those indicators that we might be able to actually see from space? So an example of that may be the proportion of, of green versus gray or how green the park is during winter months, which is especially relevant if you live in a seasonal place like the <laughs> Netherlands yeah. um, and many other cities around the world as well. Um, all these different indicators we developed using just a fusion of all these different remote sensing um, remote sensing sources, but with the with the real focus on high-res satellite imagery that ended up winning us this challenge. Oh, wow. And from there, we kind of shot into a catapult of projects with the World Bank and were able to work with several cities across Europe and also across Indonesia. And um, before we knew it, we were a full-fledged tech startup uh, moving in that direction. And uh, after working on those projects for a number of years, we, we started to understand that as much of that indicator framework that we had developed, it still seemed to be a luxury good for a lot of cities. And our, for us, we're always a mission-driven, impact-driven organization from the get-go. So we, when we looked kind of into what could be um, a more relevant project for cities, we quickly turned our attention to creating a tree inventory for cities. A tree inventory is essentially the, the baseline of any kind of urban forest master plan. Yeah. It's, a, it's a database, sometimes with a spatial component, of all the trees in a city, or at least those under the public domain. And not in the Netherlands per se, but in a lot of cities around the world, some huge cities that you would be shocked to find out actually don't have at least not an up-to-date tree inventory. And the reason being is it's extremely tedious and also uh, costly to create one of these. And it often takes a long time. It can take three to seven years to create a full-fledged inventory of all the trees in your city. So you can imagine by the time that you've downloaded or you've, you've uploaded that data to the database, it yeah. might already be outdated by the time the whole tree inventory is complete. So we're interested if, you know, high-res imagery might actually be able to, to augment that process, not as a full replacement, but at least as perhaps a baseline inventory or to complement an existing tree inventory. And uh, last year, when I got the chance to live in Boston yeah. for a number of months, we got in touch with the city of Boston and specifically through a, a great department at the city of Boston called the Mayor's Office for New Urban Mechanics, which is essentially um, Boston's uh, civic R&D research lab. Okay. And with them and through a whole other host of civic stakeholders, we were able to basically prototype what is now known as TreeTech, which is our urban tree detection algorithm. And we were able to do that for a neighborhood in Boston. And throughout that process, we began to understand that moving towards an open source collective may be the best way for us to accelerate our mission. Mm. So that's what we did. Yeah, no, amazing, amazing. And so, the open source um, collective that you're starting, how is that progressing? Like, are you getting in touch with other cities that are joining or like, do you help them with implementation of it as well? Like how, how does it? Yeah, uh, so there's, there's two sides of it. On the one hand, of course, everything that we've done for, for Boston and also for some other projects are, are now open source. So those workflows are available for any city that feels like they have the uh, competencies in-house to be able to do it. Yeah. And for those that don't, of course, we're still here to be able to help them throughout that process as well and to partner with organizations. And I think that's something that's really in our DNA at Green City Watch is 
working directly with partners in kind of a, a, a rapid iteration process so that we're really developing something that's useful to the people that are using it in the field. Because that's our, our, our the most important goal at the end of the day, that what we're building for them is, yes, it's technology, yes, it's an exciting emerging technology, but it has to be useful at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm curious, so since you're, um, well, given your work with the cities, like a big topic right now is obviously the ethical implications of using, let's say, like monitoring technologies in general. And I know that you're not monitoring people in this case, but um, the trees and nature. But is this a topic that is being discussed like in these conversations with the cities and like how, yeah, what is the, the general gist that you can give from that? Yeah, indeed. It's it's something that, although we might not be scanning people's faces, we are scanning people's trees. And one of the exciting things about the technology that we develop with TreeTech is that it's, it's you know, a satellite image doesn't, you know, differentiate between public and private land. Yeah. And a tree that's planted on private land is still giving the community that surrounds it a whole lot of benefits. So it's actually in the city's interest to understand what's going on with that tree, whether that's an invasion with pests, Again, if, if a tree on private land has a pest invasion or any kind of sickness, it can easily spread to the next tree over. And, if, and as soon as it's on public tree, then it's the city's problem. Um, so there's, and there's also things in certain cities like private tree ordinances, which actually protects trees that are on private land that the city doesn't even own. But if it's a tree over a certain size, the city actually has regulations in place that don't allow you to just cut down that tree for a new development, for example. And this is done to protect the urban forest. The only problem with that is that's extremely difficult to enforce. And there are certain cities that we've talked to that despite them planting five, 10,000 new trees every single year, they're still losing trees. They simply can't keep up with the rate of deforestation that's happening on private land. So this is a massive problem. And our technology in that could be a possible solution to be able to, if not enforce, at least track that it's happening yeah. and in a cost-effective way. Um, the problem with that, though, is once the city becomes, or not the problem, but a potential problem might be that once the city is aware of that information, then becomes a big legal question, does that mean they're also liable? So if they know that there is a tree on private land and they know approximately perhaps it's its species or its health or its size, these different attributes that you could, you know, perhaps identify with high-res satellite imagery, does that then also make it liable if that tree then the next day falls on someone, for example? Yeah. If the tree is aware of that information, what does that mean for them? So that's a huge liability issue um, in the same way that, you know, if there's a, if there's a tree God forbid, break something, yeah. or worse, when they trip over that tree root, the city is liable. So uh, that's a huge, a huge question mark. And I think yeah. that's why, getting back to why we like to work in close partnership with cities when developing these technologies, that's so critical to us mm -hmm. because they can let us know from their perspective what exactly they need help with and maybe certain things that the technology shouldn't touch on just yet because mm -hmm. the legal structure simply isn't there to, to keep up with the technological advancements. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, um, so how do you deal with that in the conversations you're having with the cities? Like, is this really often like a prominent conversation where there's really like, you know, you end up with a conclusion of these things we do want to do, this we don't want to do if we have that information, or is it way more out in the open? Or like, yeah, how does that look um, like? I mean, it plays a prominent role in the sense that a city may say, okay, these are, you know, the boundaries between public and private land. Yeah. Don't give us the information for private trees. Okay. So it, it might it might be as simple as that. Yeah. Or otherwise, um, you know, they might say, okay, you can give us the locations, but not any attributes of that tree. Because if you just, if you only know the location, you really can't be held liable for very much. As soon as you start to know more information about the health, the, the current status of that tree, it becomes a little bit more of a gray area. But there's also initiatives like the city of Amsterdam, actually, and the city of Helsinki partnered together recently to launch, I think it's just called the AI Open Register, which includes all the, or at least some, and the, the hope is to populate it more, uh, the algorithms that the city uses within, it, within its you know, civic processes uh, and actually making those open source to give citizens a better idea of you know, what, what kind of AI is being used uh, yeah. in that capacity. So that may be a way forward too, is that um, you know, you're actually making the citizens aware of, of what they're tracking. Mm, yeah. Now, we were obviously talking a lot about cities and as we're living in 2020, um, a lot of things are changing right now. And so that, that kind of makes me wonder, um, do you think that the pandemic that we're living through right now will actually change the way that urban life is? And yeah, and if you think so, then then how? I think there's there's two main trends that you're seeing. On the one hand, during the first lockdown that we had in March and April and May, urban nature started to take on roles that it that it never had before all of a sudden urban nature was the only place that you could go to for a little bit of refuge it was the only place where you could move your body play with your kids it was used as a as a classroom as a, as a place for meditation as a place for work uh, most people in in that were living in urban centers, most of them didn't have the luxury of having their own little private green space, so they would go in masses to these public green spaces. And that was interesting because I think more than ever, the importance of green space in cities was really highlighted and really be, started to become a, a top priority for, for a lot of cities in the same way that we saw this transition with, with biking as well. Of course, we're from Amsterdam, but in a lot of other cities, biking infrastructure is not at the same level. And, um, you know, closing down streets, making room for restaurants so that people could dine outside. All of a sudden, it seemed like these interventions that we, that, you know, these, these, these urbanists of which I count myself one wanted for years, all of a sudden were put in in, in fast mode and were were uh, were created, which was incredible to see. Um, and I think it was also so important because when you live in a small apartment and you're in a lockdown scenario, green space is really the only place where you can still maybe get your daily dose of vitamin D, yeah. which you know ironically enough is is a key virus fighting agent. Um, so I think that's, on the one hand, urban nature became more important than ever before. On the other hand, of course, you're starting to see, now that we're going into almost a second lockdown uh, phase, that the people who can will leave the city, absolutely, because they're starting to realize, you know, crowded areas are the lifeblood of cities, and all of a sudden, crowded areas have become public health risks. So when you take those two together, 
when you when all the social activities you know falls away, when restaurants close, when theaters close, when all you can do is you know work from home, yeah. all that you're left with is your family, your friends, and your small apartment. So the people that have the ability to already, we're seeing this are moving away from cities. We saw this locally in Amsterdam by the housing prices of, not in Amsterdam, but of the area surrounding Amsterdam increasing during that time. And there's, there's, there's research also in the States which shows that people have been moving out of cities. But that is only for the people who have the ability to. Yeah. There are a lot of people for which that is not an option. And that's why I continue to harp on the power that the Internet of Nature can have, because despite people even living in slightly less urbanized situations, there will always be cities and there will always be densely populated cities and urban nature will forever play a key role in that now and in the future. Mm. And does this affect your work in terms of the Internet of Nature and also how you see that work evolving? I think on the one hand, the I've been in, in my work of the last three years have been very much focused on better monitoring tools especially geared towards uh, municipalities and organizations. You know, how can you really enhance the green benefits, whether that's through a sensor network or remote sensing or uh, putting tree bots into the tree to do dangerous work. I've been very much focused on those, um, on those benefits. And I think now, as through also, of course, the changes that COVID-19 has brought, has become a little bit more focused on kind of the citizen engagement side of things and how can technology actually help people better reconnect to nature. Mm -hmm. So this could be through an app where um, where young and old can actually um, be able to take a photo of a flora or fauna and be able to identify what species it is. And if there's a geo, um, a, you know, a geotag location to that, you can actually create a map of biodiversity in the city, I think, which is a, a great way to also take the classroom outdoors in a time of, you know, sitting behind a screen all day, both for work and for education. Um, but there's also ways of, you know, scaling up, you know, what I, the project I mentioned earlier of doing that with reviews for, for Google and TripAdvisor reviews. There's always, there's, there, you know, you can use those tactics um, kind of loosely defined as natural language processing for uh, Facebook posts, for tweets, for Instagram um, pictures and their captions. There's all these different ways that we can get a better grasp of how urban nature is being used both before and during the pandemic and how we might actually, what that might teach us about how we can improve these spaces so that they're more accessible for everybody in the city. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you're like really connecting these different forms of tech that are usually used in a very different context and frequently to nature. And I think it, it kind of brings me back to where you started with like the ecological engineering, which is quite a small area still. And I don't think everyone has heard of it of, and of what it means and like how you become really an ecological engineer. Um, can you tell a bit more about that role and like how that like manifests itself in the different types of work that you're doing? So I think one of the main challenges I have in my work is the fear of tech adoption, specifically in the uh, conservative uh, and sometimes traditional sector of arboriculture, urban forestry, and, and ecology in general. I think speaking very broadly and in large generalizations, ecologists in general um, have always had the feeling that if I'm not there in the field, how can you like, how can you possibly know what's going on? And I think a lot of the work that I do can 
optimize and make those, uh, those, those that field work a lot more efficient. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means is when you have a fear of tech adoption, it requires you know a, a new breed of professional that in my dissertation I define as the ecological engineer because on the one hand, the ecological perspective, they need to understand the problems at play. But the engineering perspective, they need to be well-versed in the potential solutions that could be there. But they also, and it's inherent to being an ecological engineer, you can speak both languages. Mm-hmm. And I think that translation role to really ensuring that these solutions end up being, you know, they might not be perfect the first time around, but at least start being iterated yeah. is is crucial to building these better ecosystems that we want. Yeah. Yeah, and so if I remember correctly, but you kind of started more from the theoretical understanding rather than like let's say the technology understanding. Like how did you experience that learning as well? Because I can imagine it's quite like it's like the alpha, gamma versus like the beta type of yeah. work as well. Like yeah, how did you experience that? Well, I get lucky that with the background in ecology and earth science, you're introduced to a lot of these tools and techniques early on in your education. So there was a certain um, technological affinity from early on. So that definitely helped. And then I think actually I, I veered more throughout the process of writing, well, it is called a doctor of philosophy for a reason. I started to really philosophize about what the potential role could be of technology in ecology um, and vice versa. I think there's a lot to kind of learn from both. And I think that's kind of what helps you um, or what helped me at least come up with the concept of the Internet of Nature at the end of the day. Okay, interesting. And so I'm curious to hear your perspective on the following, because you've spoken about the ecological engineering role as kind of the bridging role between the fields of ecology and engineering. But what would you recommend to people who are perhaps specialized in their respective fields, but not so well versed in the technological side of things? How should they use like their knowledge to get to the types of solutions that you were talking about earlier? I think first and foremost is, uh, you know, sitting around the same tables as technologists and as uh, data scientists and as software engineers. And I think we're having too little of those conversations where those people are talking to each other. And I think they have an an incredible amount of knowledge that they could exchange and that they could learn from each other. Mm -hmm. So I I hope to also play a role, um, you know, profiling myself as as a, a, a translator in that regard, be able to disseminate that knowledge and be able to, to get those different parties around the table. I think I think that's step number one, yeah. so that we may work towards speaking the same language. Yeah. Yeah. And what else are you currently working on? So we spoke a lot about basically the work you have done before. Um, what are you working on right now? So my big drive right now is to bring the concept of the Internet of Nature forward. And I see a couple of key ways to do that. Uh, for one, I'm speaking a lot. So I think that's, you know, speaking and storytelling is one of the most compelling ways to be able to share knowledge and disseminate knowledge. And especially when it comes to, you know, what might be seen as uh, intimidating stuff, technology. It's not everyone's forte and what I'm, I'm, I'm and it, you know, I certainly don't understand every single aspect of ecology or every single aspect of technology, um, but I think it's you know being brave to enter those conversations and just going for it and just trying it. Um, so that's one. And another is um, 
you know, getting involved with organizations that might see room for uh, a digital revolution, whether that's of uh, the urban nature that they manage with its municipality, whether that's with uh, a landscape architectural firm, whether that's with a bigger tech company. There are, um, there are an incredible amount of organizations that are in the management of ecology in some way. And I think technology can be an absolute boost in, in optimizing those processes. So I'm excited to be, um, yeah, to, to, to be the ecological engineer that helps them through that, what can sometimes be a scary digital revolution. Yeah, yeah, oh, great. And okay, so we're kind of nearing towards the end of uh, basically our time here, I would say. Um, but if people want to learn more about you or the type of work you're doing or even get involved or collaborate or whatsoever, what should they do? <laughs> so I'm very active on LinkedIn and Twitter. So they can follow me on LinkedIn, uh, Nadina Gali, and on Twitter, uh, at earth to nadina uh, A long time inside joke that's still going strong. <laughs> um, so you can follow me there and also visit my website, nadinagali.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Nadina. Thanks for having me, Natalie. And that was it for this episode of the Human-Centered AI Podcast. If you like this episode or have any feedback, do not hesitate to reach out to us at deus.ai. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time.